0: Dr. David White here. Welcome back for CRIM 411. On to lesson six in this episode for uh, a review here of chapter two of our text on uh, models of criminal justice. And so people often differ in their attitudes and opinions uh, about criminal justice work, how it should be done, and this shapes their overall views of course about the system of justice in the United States. Public opinion polls show us uh, and other research as well that uh, these differences often exist and are drawn along political lines between conservatives and liberals as we've already sort of discussed in this class and as well uh, along racial and ethnic lines uh, with uh, white Americans having different attitudes about criminal justice practice uh, compared to black Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities. Chapter 2 opens with a discussion once again of how people overall though possess a little knowledge about how the system actually operates the intent of certain crime control policies as well as the outcomes so similar to his liberal versus conservative theology view presented in chapter one walker describes here two basic attitudes towards criminal justice one he refers to is the old idealism the other the new cynicism so from this perspective he tells us that the old idealism is that classic sort of civics book perspective or picture of justice whereby hard-working civil servants go out there, they carry out the law as it's written more or less, uh, that is the law in the books, and they believe uh, the persons are arrested, prosecuted, punished according to sort of clearly prescribed punishments uh, within the context of their particular offense. The new cynicism on the other hand portrays a chaotic criminal justice system in which There seems to be no law, order, or justice, he says on page 39. He says this version, uh, that is, of the new cynicism comes in one of two forms. First, he describes a conservative view, the conservative cynics, who believe the criminal justice actors, that's the police and the courts especially, are simply not carrying out the law in the way that it was intended when it was put together, thereby letting criminals go unpunished or uh, blaming criminals, Uh, crafty defense attorneys for exploiting the procedures to help criminals beat the system and get away with their crimes. The second group out out of this category he defines as liberal cynics or liberal cynicism which uh, also believes that the system is overall simply out of control, administering justice in an arbitrary way that's often biased. So this group uh, uh, focuses on systemic discrimination and biases within the system especially towards racial minorities and the poor. Walker blames both groups uh, for somewhat of a distorted view, not discrediting their uh, positions entirely, but instead advocating that a better approach uh, to our thinking about criminal justice should involve a sense of what he calls, quote, sober realism. And so he says that uh, through a sense of sober realism, We need to understand the actual scope of certain problems. We need to base our decisions on empirical facts, uh, not on faith, as he said in an earlier chapter, but uh, we also have to reject sort of uh, old myths about criminal justice system, and we have to avoid being emotionally driven about ideas, uh, particularly that come from sort of sensationalized, celebrated cases, which he focuses on throughout this chapter. So, Walker uh, concedes that much of the decision-making in criminal justice is, in fact, irrational in many ways. Again, going back to the title of the book, Sense and Nonsense, kind of gives us an idea of his overall perspective. But he says that behavior is predictable, that a lot of what the criminal justice system does, while it may be irrational, it is, in fact, predictable. That is, it's consistent. And so, where he takes us uh, next is a couple of ways of conceptualizing the criminal justice system. Uh, these should be a review for you, but all the same uh, focus here is on the fact that there are many sort of discretionary points in the process of decision making. And so, what uh, it can mean for how we see the effectiveness of certain strategies uh, at, certain, at various points and our perception of ineffectiveness, uh, these issues drive policy. And there's always a lot of talk about. Uh, particularly issues of discretion, police discretion, prosecutorial discretion, uh, judicial discretion, Uh, and so uh, those aspects are often brought up in the dialogue. In some cases people refer to it judicial activism right, when they're talking about judges discretion. The first model here and in the content I provide a a actual copy of the, the Crime Commission's model of the criminal justice system. It's a gigantic flow chart. I apologize if it's difficult to read. You might be able to find uh, another version out there on the internet, on the web, and so uh, feel free to do that, but more or less uh, it's just this gigantic flow chart uh, uh, that sort of documents and constructs uh, from the President's Crime Commission 1967 flowing from left to right. Here we see each step of uh, the process from the crime Uh, to police involvement, various court uh, processes or procedures through the correctional steps. Uh, What is made visible in the diagram really is the pervasiveness of discretionary decision points along the way at uh, various uh, points in this process. So while police discretion seems to catch a lot of attention, uh, again the fact is that criminal prosecutors wield a substantial amount of discretion that allows them Uh, to select uh, which cases get prosecuted which ones get thrown out get plea deals and go to trial. One criticism of this model and this sort of approach again from the late 1960s uh, and and the overall idea of a quote-unquote systems approach is a concern that it assumes that the parts of the system that is police courts and corrections should all be working together toward an efficient processing of cases Uh, And as a result, a certain amount of the adversarial aspect of justice gets lost. And so some people are concerned by that and don't like to take that systems approach. Uh, What this approach does, however, is it highlights how coupled together these components are and how the relationship is dynamic. Actions on the part of uh, one aspect of the system, such as police, can affect the process decisions in another, that is, in courts or corrections. For example, if the police go out and rapidly increase their arrest, take a uh, zero-tolerance strategy or approach, this pushes more people into the courts. And so therefore, uh, it increases uh, the caseload and potentially overwhelms the judicial resources. And so as a result, uh, it's more likely that prosecutors may dismiss or plea more cases. And so it may change how they process those cases when they get in front of them. The second model that Walker uh, discusses is a classic, uh, it's called the wedding cake example. Again, I hope this is a review because if memory serves me correctly, these examples are often provided in introductory level criminal justice textbooks. Uh, But in this tiered wedding cake, right? We have different layers. And so we find that each of the tiers is smaller as you move up the cake, right? Uh, The biggest uh, layer is at the base and so uh, so we work our way from a very large base up to a narrow, small uh, top on the cake. This is representative of the portion of cases at each level, whereby the bottom tier of that cake idea or concept uh, represents misdemeanor offenses that make up the largest portion of, of, of cases. right? And, and so uh, they make up the largest portion of cases. Uh, followed by nonviolent felonies such as burglary and theft. Uh, a lot of those, if you look at the actual crime numbers presented in the fourth lesson, uh, you see how many larcenies there are compared to other part one offenses in the UCR data. I mean, it dwarfs all other categories. Uh, the next layer up the cake, though, the smaller tier represents those violent felony cases. And so we're talking about rapes, uh, sexual assaults. Uh, 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 robberies, those sort of violent uh, felony cases, felony aggravated assaults. And so then at the very top of course we find celebrated cases and those are like the worst of the worst and a lot of times they capture a lot of public interest public attention. Uh, And so uh, they're not necessarily routine cases but all the same people often view them as examples of things we should be concerned about of potentials that exist, uh, and as a result, we sometimes uh, set public policy around these rare but yet celebrated cases. Walker highlights several, such as the the Sandy Hook shooting, uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin by citizen George Zimmerman, uh, the O.J. Simpson case. Walker points out that these celebrated cases often go through the full trial process in public view Uh, as part of the overall spectacle, and in doing so they give sort of distorted public perception of how criminal justice works. Walker specifically talks about the O.J. Simpson case where Simpson was found not guilty for the death of his estranged wife, and Walker concludes that Simpson's acquittal, uh, quote, led many people to conclude that spouse murders, uh, murderers rather, beat the system all the time. Even worse, it leads many whites to believe that African-American jurors will not convict an African-American defendant. Both of these perceptions are grossly wrong, again directly quoting him there from page 46. He reports on a study uh, in making his point here that shows that only about two percent of husbands who killed their spouses were actually acquitted at trial. So about two out of every 100. Uh, another 11 percent did not get prosecuted but overall of those were found uh, or pled guilty, resulting in an average prison term of 16 and a half years. Among the serious felonies, and that is that second tier of our cake, uh, smallest tier, of course working our way down from the top down back towards the bottom, uh, we find violent serious felonies. These cases overall represent about 10% of all felonies and so again a fairly small uh, proportion. But according to according to Walker here the research tends to support what shapes criminal justice agents decision making in these cases include the nature of the crime, the use of the weapon, whether the victim was injured, the suspect's prior arrest, and the relationship between the victim and offender. And so I want to talk about and he covers uh, some of these Uh, better than others uh, in the rest of this chapter Walker points out or rather he points to the idea too here that's important uh, and that is the idea of the courtroom work group I hope you've been exposed to this before I know I I discuss it in my uh, ethics class in crim 305 so if you had me there you probably have heard of it before but the courtroom work group, which at the localized level, involves the judge, the prosecutor, and the usual defense attorneys. And this group collectively must work uh, with each other uh, day in and day out. So for the sake of efficiency, they learn to sort of get along uh, to some extent. And, and uh, part of that process, of course, of getting along is developing a common or mutual understanding of how things will work in the, in the courtroom what cases will get, what sentences, uh, which ones will go to trial, which ones would be better off in a plea bargain, uh, and what plea bargain you might uh, get in a particular case based on the seriousness, based on all of these other factors that I already mentioned. Again, the nature of the crime, the use of a weapon, uh, whether the victim was injured, the suspect's prior record, and uh, the relationship between victim and offender. In the next layer of the wedding cake, we find those less serious felonies, again such as theft. Another word here is larceny uh, um, and burglary. These make up about 90% of the felonies reported to the police. Uh, and, and larceny, for example, I mentioned this already that you can see it in the UCR numbers, but Walker mentioned specifically larcenies make up 54% of these cases. Um, as a result of the fact that these cases are more frequently Uh, or as a result basically uh, these cases are more frequently dismissed, plea bargained, and sometimes given uh, the opportunity to plead guilty to lesser offenses and given lower sentences, right? And so as we look at at the overall felony caseload, well uh, this gives a perception as Walker points out that uh, when people look at the aggregated data that is they put all felony cases together coming through the court system It gives an appearance he says uh, quote of softness because relatively few cases end up in that second layer right in those more serious cases. In the bottom layer of course that biggest layer we find misdemeanor offenses and misdemeanors are uh, handled by the lower courts and the caseload there is substantially higher than it is in the upper courts where they only process felonies and so serious felonies make up only about 17% of the 9.5 million, which we know from lesson four, the most current numbers, actually 10 million arrests per year. Um, And as a result, uh, of prosecuting less serious cases, of having a heavier caseload, of course, plea bargaining is a more regular part of resolving cases at that level, right? At the misdemeanor level, very common to see prosecutors uh, um, very quickly throwing out plea deals to just sort of move cases along. Again, the courtroom work group is important in that context. So Walker uh, describes in a little bit more detail a few of these reasons for discretion in court, uh, one being the defendant's prior record. And so Walker highlights that uh, the percentage of defendants convicted on felony sentences to prison uh, drops or dropped in one study 54 percent or from 54% for those who had two or more prior felony convictions to only 29% for those with no conviction, felony or misdemeanor. And so showing there that uh, not quite twice as likely, but all the same getting close, 54% versus 29% between those who had two or more prior convictions versus those who had no convictions. So the defendant's prior record is certainly important. The victim offender relationship is the next factor that he talks about and in personal crimes, both in serious violent crimes and in misdemeanor offenses, the victim offender relationship is an important factor in, uh, criminal justice decision-making. To illustrate the difference here, Walker points out, uh, that about 50% of sexual assaults in one study were perpetrated by men who knew the victim. And in these cases, about 60% of them were dismissed. Another 20% allowed to plead guilty to uh, a very light sentence. But in the stranger-related rapes, nearly all of them went to trial, and 75% resulted in conviction and imprisonment, with two-thirds of the sentences exceeding 25 years. So, just showing the radical difference there in the crime of rape between uh, rapes where the relationship is known, such as a date rape sort of situation. Uh, versus a stranger rape and so uh, vast differences based on that victim-offender relationship. Some people question, he points this out, question the legitimacy of using victim-offender relationship in decision-making. According to Walker, eliminating the reliance on this aspect, not necessarily specifically to sexual assault, but in general here talking about uh, in eliminating the reliance on this aspect, uh, there would be an improved sense of equity uh, a desirable outcome of course but at the same time he points out it most likely increase the sense of punitiveness in the system which is a, a less desirable outcome in most cases as nearly an aside here he throws in a concept of back-end sentencing just to sort of point out how uh, complex the system can be in its processing uh, but he points out this what he calls back-end sentencing where we see that uh, he gives California as an example that two-thirds right, two-thirds of the people entering prison were actually coming not from new trials or new prosecutions but from parole revocation so people who have been paroled and the parole agent um, is sending them back to prison they violated their parole terms conditions of their release and so a lot of those are technical violations and uh, we find that two-thirds of the the folks going into the California prison system coming from parole revocations. That's pretty much it from chapter two. Uh, in conclusion here I just say that while Walker draws out several good points about how cases are, are processed and a few things that go into the decision-making and court stages what he doesn't highlight so much in this chapter are at least a couple other important aspects he did briefly mention them uh, but that is the strength of the evidence and the presence of a weapon particularly the strength of an evidence or strength of the evidence in a case is a key factor in prosecutorial decision making prosecutors do not like to lose cases at trial and so uh, if they do not see a case as a slam dunk they are hesitant to take it to trial and instead, they uh, of course make an offer, a plea deal, uh, and, and in cases where the strength of evidence is good, uh, they may also exert more pressure on the defense to accept the terms of a plea offer. Uh, this may increase the defense attorney's course of pressure on their uh, client to accept the offer, right? and thus uh, defendants who uh, who don't have vast resources to retain powerful attorneys who. Are relying on public defenders are perhaps more likely uh, to find themselves in these situations for example uh, take the plea deal for five years or risk getting ten if I go to trial and get found guilty right and so uh, if you're sitting in that seat as the defendant what do you do right Uh, you may in fact be innocent but you know the evidence looks bad Uh, do you take a five-year plea deal or uh, take it to trial and risk getting double that amount Walker more or less wants to remind us here in this chapter that we should not rely on that small handful of celebrated cases that are often over uh, portrayed in the media, but instead to get focused on more of the everyday things, right? The actual crime numbers, particularly with attention to violent uh, crime, violent victimizations. And so that's where he leaves us in chapter two. Uh, uh, Overall, I hope you're enjoying the book here. We're gonna move in uh, from lesson to lesson. We'll cover each chapter. Not necessarily always in order, but uh, again, uh, a fairly good textbook and I hope you're getting something out of it. I encourage you to read the full chapter as well as either listen to the summary here like this or, or read the summaries yourself on our Canvas homepage. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me by email or otherwise let me know.